Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. March of this year, I was away for a little while. Um, I went on a month's leave, and I've spoken a bit about it previously, that I went down south for a little while. And um, if you could put up the slide for me there, Stephen. Um, I'm doing a different series. I'm speaking for the next three weeks. But what happened was I went down south, like I said, and during that time I walked the Cape to Cape. Now, I know that some people have done it. I know Matt, the Hornets have done it. I know Jess has done it. Anyone else walk the Cape to Cape? A couple of people? Yeah. Um, and... Being alone, so for that amount of time, gives you a lot of time to think, a lot of time to process, a lot of time to pray. Um, and over that time, God began to really start speaking quite loudly on some really specific stuff with me. And um, I pretty much, as he would speak, I'd stop and write it or in the evening, I would start reflecting on what he was saying. And out of all that reflection and God speaking came this series that I'm hoping to share with you over the next three weeks. There's more than three, that God, but I've got three weeks, so that's what we're going to do. Um, now, let me just sort of set the scene a bit. So me walking, I cheated just a smidge. So I walked the whole thing I, between... Oh, yeah, yeah. Be between lighthouse to lighthouse, okay? But I didn't camp because you're supposed to camp. Like, it took me seven nights, but uh, seven days, but I did. See, don't shake your head. So I actually, were we talking at Christmas time last year, I think, Caleb? Um, so Caleb was going to come with me and he was going to camp with me. And then he found out that I wasn't camping. He's like, mm, no, that's not real. So he didn't come. <laughs> so. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't sleep on the floor in the dirt in the cotton. I, don't, I, I went back to my nice warm bed every night in Margaret River. It was completely fine. Um, so what, what happened was, so I, yeah, don't judge me, Steve. Um, so what happened was I um, had a driver, okay? So, and he would go and he would pin me. So I would drive to like a certain place and he would come and pick me up and then take me back to the start of the day's walk and then I would walk to my car. And then the following day, he would take me, like, oh, he would meet him 20 k's further down the track and he would, like, start me from where I finished yesterday sort of thing. So I walked every centimetre. I just didn't sleep there, okay? And I passed a few people who were sleeping there and they went, why did we sleep on the trail? Why didn't we get a bed? But anyway. So um, the first day he picked me up, uh, his name was Sai. The first day he picked me up near Yelling Up, in a car park near Yelling Up, and we were driving to the Cape Naturalist Lighthouse, um, where it was my first starting point. And it was that normal, awkward, getting-to-know-you sort of conversation, because I'd never met this guy before, and now I'm driving in a car with him. And so he, you know, pretty much was like, um, you know, he was telling me how much he knows about the trail, how long he's been driving between sort of Augusta and Dunsborough, that... If I have any questions at all, he'll be able to answer them and because he's pretty much a subject matter expert because he'd been doing it for so long, which was true. He knew a lot, yeah? And then sort of the question became was, 
So do you have any questions? And ignorance is bliss sometimes because oh, you don't know what you don't know, especially when you haven't experienced something. So I didn't know any questions to ask about the trail, the track, because you don't know how horrible it's going to be for the next seven days. Um, but the question I did ask him, which was trying to make conversation, was how many times have you actually walked it? Now, I don't know what the answer I thought, but the answer that I got was zero. Now, I'm not, don't, I'm not throwing any shade. Okay, he was a, he's a big lad with some health complications, so there's no, I'm not, there's no shade there at all. Um, but what stood out for me in that conversation and then throughout the rest of the week that I, like, I was with him a little bit was that everything he knows about the Cape to Cape walk is theory. He knows everything about the Cape to Cape walk except what it's actually like to walk it. Everything is theory. There is no practical experience. And this played out a couple of times over the week that I was down there, was that I would ask some really specific advice. So what would happen is I would finish my day's walk, I would go back to my nice warm house in Margaret River, and um, then I would look at what the next day held, where, like, where the potential like, hard points are and that sort of stuff. And then I would go and say, well, what about, and, like, and you go, any questions about today? Today's going to be sort of this. And then you would ask, and I would ask him really specific questions. And he would give me an answer but what I always found was that he wasn't quite right because he understood the theory of what it was like on that day, but he actually didn't understand the nuances of the experience of actually walking it. And so when we... I found myself towards the end of the week that I was asking him a bit less and less about that sort of stuff because I realised that he didn't know. Not really. And so here we're talking about the difference between knowing about something and having an experience of it. And this is the fundamental question that we're going to look at this morning. In our relationship with God, do we simply know a lot about him or do we actually have an experience of him? Because they are not the same thing. J.I. Packer, theologian, has a book called Knowing God. It's a good but tough read. And he argues two things in regards to this. The first things he argues is that you can know a great deal about God without knowing much of him. And this is what he's saying. You can have a deep interest in theology. You can read all sorts of books about Christian subjects and apologetics. You can read Christian theory, Christian history. You can know all of the creeds. You can even have scripture memorized front and back, back to front. You can preach. You can lead Bible studies. You can write articles and books on God and Christianity you might even be able to think very deeply on Christian themes. 
And you could almost be considered an expert on all of those things. And you can know all of those things and hardly know God at all. They are not the same thing. The second thing that Packer argues or says is that you can know a great deal about godliness without knowing much about God. And this is what he's saying. That you can listen to all the sermons. You can read all the books on how to pray, how to witness, how to read your Bible, how to tithe, how to be a young Christian, how to be an old Christian, how to get consecrated, how to receive baptism in the Holy Spirit, how to speak in tongues. Or you can read books on why those things aren't valid. There's both sides. (laughs) You can go through the ritual of the Christian godly life and have all of the outworkings of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. You can do all of those things without knowing God. It's not a question of whether our our, our theology is balanced. It's not a question of if we have the correct approach to our Christian living. But it is a question of if we have known God and if we are known by him. Am I stepping on any toes? I don't mean to. Let's have a look at the Bible. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21. This is Jesus speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Now, some would argue that this is the scariest passage in the Bible. That Jesus is trying to take away our assurance of salvation. Now, these verses are in the closing stages of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and there's actually going a bit on, a bit on here, um, but we're not going to sort of attack it very much this morning. What we are going to do is focus on verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus declares that not everyone who refers to him as Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the title of Lord implies master or leader or someone to whom the speaker submits. So there's an acknowledgement that they know who Jesus is and that they refer to him as someone who's higher than them. But what Jesus is saying is even that acknowledgement, that understanding that he is Lord... Verbally is not necessarily enough. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus indicates that mere words and actions are not enough. They must be motivated by sincerity and truth. And in the same way, 
Jesus states in no uncertain terms that merely referring to him as Lord is not enough, neither are acts of supposed righteousness. Entrance to the kingdom of heaven is limited to those who truly, fully do the will of his Father in heaven. This starts with a sincere faith in Christ, John chapter 6, verse 28 to 29, and extends to humility in how we live our lives, John chapter 14, verse 15. Now, if we look at the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, we will see that this is the second time that Jesus speaks of entering the kingdom of heaven. The other reference we find in John, sorry, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So if we look at these two passages together, we can say that doing the Father's will is parallel to possessing a greater righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, Jesus isn't saying that we must do what the Pharisees did, only better. What he's saying is that the scribes and the Pharisees are focusing on the wrong things. They were focusing on external behaviours. They were focusing on getting, doing things to get people's praise while neglecting to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with their God. What Jesus is saying here is that the scribes and the Pharisees are missing the point entirely. So doing the Father's will isn't just an external thing. Jesus isn't telling us to out-Pharisee them. Nor is he saying that we need to keep the Sermon on the Mount perfectly in order to be sure that we're true Christians. But the Sermon on the Mount is describing someone who reflects the Beatitudes. We spent a long time going through the Sermon on the Mount of the Beatitudes. Do you remember sort of the, the kaleidoscope or the, the concertina example that we spoke about over and over again? That if you understand what it means to be poor in spirit then everything else flows from that. The, be the rest of the Beatitudes reflect what it means to be poor in spirit and then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount describes what it's like to live in the kingdom of God, what it means to be poor in spirit. Do you, do you remember the, the folding out and then the folding all back into that one verse? So what Jesus is saying is that someone who is poor in spirit... And then someone who mourns over their sin and their wretchedness. Someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Someone who is merciful. Someone who is pure in heart. And so the list goes on. Jesus in chapter 7 is speaking not about mere knowledge and assent of him. Nor is he talking about someone who externally goes through just the motions. But what Jesus is describing is someone who is in deep relationship with him. 
We need to consider where Jesus actually fits into all of this. In John chapter 14, verse 6, we're told that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. In John chapter 14, verse 9, we are told that the one who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 23, we are told that anyone who denies the Son cannot have the Father, and he who confesses the Son has the Father also. The Father and the Son are intrinsically linked. What you know about the Son reveals who the Father is. So in the question of knowing about God as opposed to knowing God, we should probably be really clear in our minds as what it means to actually know Jesus. So just as Jesus gradually revealed himself to the disciples, they gradually went from thinking of him as a rabbi to a rabbi with power and authority to a prophet to a prophet who was more than a prophet, to a master who invoked in them a sense of awe and devotion, to the eventual realisation of his lordship and kingship. And that actually didn't come to them until after his death and resurrection. So just as Jesus walked through the Gospels, uh, the Gospel stories with his disciples, he also walks with his disciples through them today. That's you and me. Knowing Jesus today involves following him as it did then. It involves hearing and recognizing his voice and then following him. And then the thing is, we go, but how do you do that? What does that even look like? Jesus tells us everything we need to know about how to do that in the Bible. He gives us all the information that we need. You actually don't need to go to any other book. In John's Gospel, Jesus tells us who he is. He tells us that through all of his I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. If you want to understand who Jesus is, go and understand all of those. If you don't want to do the hard work in that, we did a whole series on it for three months at the end of last year. Go and listen to that again on Spotify. We can know who Jesus says he is through the scriptures. And we can also know what his kingdom looks like. He tells us that in the Sermon on the Mount. And not only does he tell us what his kingdom looks like in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us how to live in it. So from even just the two books of the Bible, don't worry, you need to read more, but in those two simple things, you actually can understand what Jesus says about himself, what he says about his kingdom, and how to live in it. We have way more information than the disciples ever had. The question is, what are you going to do with that information?
In John chapter 10, verse 24 to 30, Jesus, Jesus even tells us how to relate to him. Let's read. The Jews surrounded him and asked, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. I did tell you, and you don't believe, Jesus answered them. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. To hear Jesus' voice is to hear him as the shepherd. And the Jews in this passage don't believe him because of the lack of information. Are you the Messiah? What's going on? They know. But the thing is, what it looks like doesn't, doesn't resonate with their sense of what it should be. And they don't believe, not because they don't have the information, they don't believe because they are relationally at odds with Jesus. Now, to know Jesus as the good shepherd is not about having a prescribed religious experience or by believing the correct doctrine or by reaching a higher level of knowledge or a higher level of morality. Jesus, as the good shepherd, tells us that everything depends on belonging to him. Our status before God never depends on how we feel, on us having the right experience of being free from doubt, or on what we know or what we've accomplished. It depends on one thing and one thing only, that we are known by the shepherd. Okay, how we doing? I've given you a lot of information. Okay, let's pause for a sec. We'll try and connect some dots before we move on because I realise I know I've given you a bit. So for the next couple of minutes, you might hear the same information again, but let's do it. So there's a big difference between knowing about God and actually knowing God. And as we've discovered, hopefully, this morning, that the Bible actually speaks of this difference. We've learned so far that Jesus, in Jesus' own words, that there's a difference between them both, that knowing about him and even doing works in his name are not the same as actually being in relationship with him. We can know the Bible back to front and be the most pious person around. But if we don't know his voice as the shepherd and if we are not known by him and if we don't follow him as the shepherd, then according to Jesus, we do not have eternal life. And that's hard to hear sometimes. It's like, oh, that feels really exclusionary. 
The thing is, Christianity, Jesus' invitation is actually the only invitation that anyone's ever offered to everybody. Everybody's invited. Nobody's excluded. But the thing is, the invitation is not into a set of rules or a set of laws or a set of morality. The invitation that Jesus is offering the world eternally is relationship. To know him. To be known by him. And it is through this relationship that everything else flows. How we exalt him and celebrate his greatness. How we praise him. How we are obedient to him. Everything we do is done to please him, done to glorify him. And that is the life of the kingdom. That is the life of following the shepherd. On Monday night, just this last week, we have obviously a prayer meeting every Monday night here. And um, I was sitting there just praying and reading my Bible and thinking about this because obviously it was coming up. And the question that hit me, which I hadn't previously had in my notes, was if we know all these things, potentially... Why do we pursue the imitation? Why do we accept the counterfeit? Why are we happy with knowing about God rather than having a deep relationship with him? It could be that we don't know that it's imitation. We've perceived the imitation as the real thing and we don't know. I'm hoping if you're in that boat that this morning we'll begin a journey of asking questions beyond that. It could be that we know it's the imitation but we're afraid of the real thing. It could be that we think we're a sinner And that we are bad and God is mad. And we have put ourselves in our own little time out. Because God could never possibly love me. So I'm excluding myself from relationship because I am not good enough. It could be that we like the praise of others. Or we like our current life. And quite frankly, God interrupting it is extremely inconvenient. Or it could be we know all of those things. But we actually really believe that the imitation is enough. Now this isn't a new predicament. The Israelites when they crossed over the Red Sea from Egypt and they're on the plain of Mount Sinai, what did they say to Moses? 
you know what? We're cool. We'll hang here. Moses, you go up the hill and relate with God. And then you come down and tell us what it's like. But we don't want to go there. He's too scary. So you go and do it, and we're just happy to hang out with Moses. So these problems aren't new. But the thing is, do you want to be a person who stays on the plane? Or do you want to be someone who goes up the mountain? That's the difference between knowing about God and experiencing him. The thing is, whatever the reason it might be, we need to start seeking a different heart posture before the Lord. So how do we potentially do that? Like I've already said several times, I'm going to say it again, you can know a great deal about God without knowing of him and you can know a great deal about godliness without actually knowing him. The thing is, though, that's not an excuse to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, Brett said that I don't need to worry about all of those things and all I need to do is pursue relationship with God, so therefore I don't need to read my Bible and I don't need to worry about learning more about God, so therefore it's just me and God, we're going to hang, it's going to be cool. That's not what I'm saying. Knowing about God and knowing about godliness are actually necessary. Romans chapter 10 verse 14 tells us, it says this, How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? So reading your Bible, understanding theology and understanding holiness, all of those things are actually all important. The thing is we need to remember that those things are not the goal. As one author writes, the width of our knowledge is no, about him is no gauge of the depth of our knowledge of him. If your knowledge of God is a mile wide and an inch deep, you've got the mass around the wrong way. And the thing is, getting to know God as opposed to simply knowing about him doesn't actually look on the surface that much different. But the thing, the difference is, is the why. Let's have a look at just a couple of examples. Matthew chapter 6, where am I? Verse 5. This is Jesus speaking again. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door and pray to the Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. Well, firstly, whenever you pray, 
The expectation is that you do. So when you pray, these times should be private time between worshipper and Lord. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't participate in corporate prayer. But the question is, when you are praying out loud in corporate prayer, who is your audience? That's the question. If you're praying, these are just some examples, there's no judgment here. But if you're praying in corpor- corporately, if you're praying to sound smart, or the flip side of that same coin, if you aren't praying because you think you don't sound smart, maybe you need to think about that. This is my favourite one. When you're in corporate prayer, do you pray to tell others off? (laughs) Oh, Lord, please help little Johnny be more understanding to my needs. Like, how dare you pray like that? The amount of times I've been told off in prayer, like generally because people have got something going on with them and they pray and it's like, all these people, and it's like, cool. Do you pray because you like the sound of your own voice? Now, I'm not saying anything about people who pray for long. If you've got something to say to God, that's awesome. But sometimes in a corporate prayer setting and someone just goes on and on and it's great sometimes and other times I get this real feeling from God that it's like all I hear now are clanging cymbals because this person is praying because they love the sound of their voice. So what Jesus here is telling us that it is important to meet God in secret and that our audience is God and God alone even if you are in a public space Jesus often separated himself to pray on the mountain in Acts 10 we're told that Peter went on his rooftop to pray so wherever your secret place is go there often but do it for the glory of God, not your own. Do you see the different heart posture? Another example. Colossians. Take a drink. This is a bit long. Chapter 3, starting at verse 1. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, desire and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now, put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self. 
you are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are to also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you are also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So in verses chapter, I saw you sort of verses one to three there. Seek the things above, where Christ is. Set your mind on things above, not earthly things. You died, and your life is hidden in Christ. And when you start to look back at the understanding of knowing about God as opposed to knowing God, that's actually playing out here. Knowing simply about God is seeking human understanding and putting your focus on earthly things. Understanding who God is, having relationship with him, is putting your mind on heavenly things. Pursuit of relationship, being known, knowing him. And this is the focus of Christian living. We died with Christ and because of that we are now alive in him. And the best Christian living comes from minds that are fixed on heaven. I'm almost done guys if you want to come up. We put on, or sorry, we put away the old self. If you are alive in Christ, then your old self is dead. The old way of living, the old habits that defile and distract, they are dead to us now. And the freedom in Christ is the freedom not to choose that, life, that way of life anymore. I think often Christians misunderstand what freedom is. Because I've heard it said many times. It's like, well, I'm free now. I can choose whatever. If you are dead, what can you choose? You can't choose anything. Someone who is dead can't choose to be alive. Not under their own strength. If you are alive in Christ and the freedom that Christ gives you is the freedom to choose not to be dead and behave like a dead person anymore. That's the freedom we have in Christ. It's not the freedom that you can go and choose to sin whenever you want and God will forgive you. Now, God will forgive you, 
But that's not the equation that Jesus is talking about. The difference between being dead and being alive, those who are alive in Christ have the freedom to choose not to behave like dead people anymore. That's what it means. Those people who are dead can't choose that because they can't be alive under their own steam. In Christ, we can put on the new self, renewed mind, new heart, and all of those things that image God. And a life that images Christ looks like verses 12 to 17 here in Colossians. Holy, compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient, forgiving, loving, united, peaceful, thankful. But the thing is, we don't do that for the sake of those things alone or for our sake. That's not the equation. Verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Outworking the Christian life, we do not do it for our glory, but we do it for the glory of God. We don't do it for our benefit, but we do it for God. Because our lives image Christ through the relationship that we have with him. Being known by him. Knowing him as opposed to simply knowing about him. So as I finish, the question is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do now? Like the guy who drove me around on the Cape to Cape, having never walked it, are you content to simply keep knowing just about God? Or are you going to put on your hiking boots and walk with God? Fully experience His reality, His glory? in deep relationship what are you going to do let's pray heavenly father we come before you in Jesus name this morning and father I pray that your presence here this morning begins to do business with your people Father, you have revealed yourself to us through your son, Jesus. And you call on us to not simply just know about you like a maths equation, Father, but as a relationship to have of deep knowledge and understanding of who you are and deep knowledge of understanding of you knowing us. Father, what a privilege that you call us to. This life of relationship with you. Heavenly Father, this morning I pray that you undull ears and open eyes and open hearts to the reality of who you are. That you 
Reveal yourself in new ways where people can begin to experience your reality beyond their own. And Father, I pray this morning that in the softness and your grace, that you free people from the ties that bind, from the ways of thinking that inhabit, inhibit, that you open hearts and minds, that you soften our souls. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen.